Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, thank you for being with us. If you will be open your Bibles to Ephesians, the sixth chapter. We won't have slides tonight, but most of what we will study will be either out of the book of Ephesians or Revelation. And so if you'll grab your Bibles and, and go to Ephesians 6, we'll begin there in just a few moments. You know, I was thinking earlier this week of how blessed we are uh, to have deacons that work so hard and carry out their ministries with, with great uh, responsibility and, and do so in a wonderful way. And I was thinking about the uh, stewardship Sunday that we had past Sunday and appreciate Scott Humphrey's work in that. It wasn't many weeks before that. We had Friends Day and Chris Plummer did a great work in that. Uh, just around the corner, we're going to have a grief seminar and Jam Jeremy Andrews is arranging all of that. And you'll hear more about that soon. Uh, we are the sermon day. It's just around the corner. And Jason Haley and Sean Owens and Joe Cowan and Martin Porter are working diligently on that. And every day and every week, we as a congregation experience ministries that our deacons lead and um, much of what we enjoy when we come together, even down to the organization of this service, uh, is because we have great deacons and, and they do a great work. And, and we just want to say thank you to you and we appreciate so much uh, what you are and who you are in the life of our church family and for leading us in your various ministries. Also, thank you for your generosity to the uh, gift for the Bibles for the Tanzania uh, work. Uh, we have collected enough uh, to purchase those Bibles and perhaps even extra Bibles. And, and we thank you so much for that. As we're passing out thank yous and, and et cetera, um, you know, to, to much is... Uh, to, to whom much is given, much is required. And that is what it is. And, and uh, God revealed that to us. And so in that, uh, we simply line up and say yes to the Lord. And, you know, randomly and often we get phone calls of people that need help. And just the last few days, we had a phone call of a church that is north of Lebanon, about 15 miles, that they didn't have anybody to help them move pews to their church building. And so uh, yesterday, we had about six or eight men from this congregation that brought their trucks and trailers, and they spent all Saturday morning uh, moving pews for uh, them. And uh, we're thankful that we could help them. And to each of you men, uh, you know who you are, and uh, I see several of you. And uh, appreciate what you do. And that's just one example of, of what happens over and over. Let's all find our place. We can't all do everything. There's too much good going on. Uh, we can't do everything, but let's make sure that we find the opportunity that matches up with our ability and let's faithfully and fervently serve the Lord in that. Perhaps our nation has never sacrificed as a collective whole for the cause of a war like we have since World War II. In World War II, it wasn't just the men and the soldiers that went out to battle, that they did sacrifice so much and risk so much. But even every man and woman and child that remained back in the United States sacrificed. There were a lot of things that just simply weren't purchased. It wasn't because that there wasn't money to purchase it. It's because the products weren't there. Because many of the, the lines and, and the plants and factories that would have produced these consumer products were switched over. And now they were making army jeeps or tanks or artillery or ammunition. And many of the resources that, that would have just naturally flowed in a time of freedom, everybody in America agreed that we would turn those resources 
toward the efforts of winning the war. And so gas that at one time was freely purchased was rationed. Shoes, car tires, sugar, all of those things, no matter how much money you had, they weren't free to obtain. And there was a statement, not of complaint, but just of observation that was oftentimes said during that time. It would be this. Well, there's a war going on, you know. You know, like if you had a family reunion and it was several counties away and you didn't have enough ration gas to get there and back, you'd have to call your family and say, hey, we're going to have to miss the reunion this year. We're so hard, sorry, but, but we just don't have enough gas to get there and back. But you understand, right? You know, there's a war going on. Or you'd have company over to your house. Maybe you're eating a meal and playing cards that night. But then you'd have to explain after the meal, I'm sorry, there's not going to be dessert tonight. You know, we just didn't have enough sugar. And we don't have any more ration to us. There's a war going on, you know. When I hear believers in the Lord speak of observing 9-11, a reading of the Holocaust and saying, but, you know, I believe in the Lord, but it still stirs some doubt in my mind. Where was God when all of that was taking place? Or maybe another believer says, you know, I believe in the God of peace, but yet the house I live in is... It's full of so much turmoil in my house and there's so much bitterness and, and just hatefulness in my house that sometimes I struggle to even know the God of peace because I feel like I'm living far from peace. Or maybe someone else says, I hear that God's powerful, but the temptation I bear seems to just constantly defeat me and sometimes I... I can't help but wonder which one is the most powerful, good or evil? Because it seems like I fail a lot. The statements like that are made, are they made because people are just people? Are they made because the gospel no longer has any power? Are they, are they made because there's not Christians around to strengthen each other? You know, I don't know all the details for each individual that would say those things, but I just want to remind you tonight one very big reason why those things are said. There's a war going on, you know. Tonight, I want to remind all of us that if we have committed our life to being in covenant relationship with the Lord, we have signed up to battle Satan. And it really doesn't matter in one sense how you feel about that. You will be attacked. There is a war going on. The day that the Lord was resurrected, the war in, in, in the biggest picture had been won. Satan had been defeated. But yet every day there's still battles going on until Jesus comes again. And the battle right now is for my soul and it's for your soul. And the question is, when Jesus comes again, which side will we be on?
And that's what Ephesians 6 is about. We can read Ephesians 6 beginning in verse 10 and we can read it as if it's just about this armor that, oh, it's just a good thing that Christians do. They just put on this armor and we can read it about like, it's just me and, and it's just me and, and standing up against Satan and it, it is kind of. But underneath all of that, there's this strong foundation of truth. There's this current underlying all of this that there's a war going on that's been going on a lot longer than you and I have been alive. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to read Ephesians, the sixth chapter, and I'd like for you to, as we read this, to really give emphasis in your mind, uh, in the understanding of this, <clears throat> to hear the underlying message that this war is bigger than just you. And so the plea is in Ephesians 6 and verse 10, finally, my brethren, be strong, where, where? In the Lord, in the power of his might, as opposed to what? Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or the calculations of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of the faith at which, with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Do you hear this underlying message that's taking place? Before you and I were ever born, there's this war going on between God and Satan. And the question is, which side are you going to stand on? And so as Paul has written this beautiful book of Ephesians, before he closes it out, he takes, if you will, a slight turn that's a little bit different than anything that he has addressed up to this point in Ephesians. And it's almost as if he's closing out the book by saying, oh, and I need to remind you, there's a war going on. And you need to make sure that you stand in the strength and in the power of the Lord. You don't wrestle flesh and blood. There's this enemy, the devil. And he is calculating the wiles, the calculation of the devil is opposed to you. And it's not just the devil either. It's the darkness and the power and the principality of darkness that surrounds Satan and is in the world of darkness. And so because of that, because it's not flesh and blood, you're going to need help. You're going to need to take up on the armor of God just so you can withstand. If you're going to withstand, you have to stand with God. Above all, stand. How are you going to stand against him? Take those loose garments and pull them up and get yourself ready with the belt of truth. Put on a breastplate 
of righteousness. Protect those vital organs. Get your feet prepared to take the gospel. Grab up that big shield, and that's the word that's used in the Greek, that big shield of faith. Protect that brain, that mind, that spiritual heart is there. The helmet of salvation. And grab up that dagger. Grab up that sword. Just the word of God. And get ready to stand with God and withstand the evil one. Do you realize that in Genesis 3, that wasn't just a battle against Eve and Adam and Satan? The deeper message is the battle was still raging with Satan and God. Satan attacked the word of God, changing what God had said. Satan attacked the character of God, accusing to Eve that God just might not be trustworthy. And then he took the low blow and he attacked the children of God. We skip over in our Bible a little deeper and we go to the book of Job, what we just sang about. And we are reminded in the book of Job that there's a war going on, you know. And God does something in the book of Job that he doesn't do in a lot of other scriptures. He pulls back the curtain and he says, you want to see what's going on behind the scenes? And I'll speak for myself and you might join in with me. If I'm just being bluntly honest, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know exactly what to do with it all. You read the first few chapters of Job and it's, it's eerie that there's this spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. And then you say, well, how cruel would this enemy be? Well, Job buried his 10 children. That about says enough for me. He is sitting naked in ashes, sick, balls from the soles to the head, taking broken pottery and scraping himself. He no longer has a supportive wife. He has no supportive friends. All of his possessions are gone. How cruel can this enemy be? And yet, it was just a war against Satan and God. And Job was drawn into it. It's sobering to think of Jesus' words to Peter. When he told Peter, Satan wants to sift you like wheat. And I'm going to pray for you. If that doesn't give you cold chills... You're not listening. There's a war going on. And when you stand strong and you start making a difference in the kingdom and you start shining the Christian example in your home and you be the example at school and the workplace that you ought to be, Satan is going to want to sift you too. 
There's a war going on. And the book of Ephesians is a beautiful book that just leads right through some marvelous teachings. And then he comes to this end and there's this plea. You've got to realize there's an enemy that wants to destroy you just like he wanted to destroy Eve, Job, Peter, and you. There is a war going on. Another time that the curtains are lifted and we're able to see a little bit behind the scenes that we otherwise wouldn't know is Revelation, the 12th chapter. And I'd like for us to spend a few minutes there tonight and then we'll come back and end with just a few thoughts out of Ephesians and the lesson is yours. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, you know, this book is written in signs and symbols. And I don't declare to you everything in it is easy to understand or and definitely that I understand it all. But this is a passage that seems to kind of define itself and it helps us to understand it. In Revelation, the 12th chapter, we see this war taking place. And it begins in verse one that there's a woman. She's clothed with a sun and the moon's under her feet. So she's standing on the moon in her head, a garland of 12 stars. But this is what is real significant to this story. Then in verse two, being with child, she's praying. She cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in the heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on the heads. And when you skip over to verse 9, that dragon is clearly defined as being Satan. And in verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of the heaven and drew them to the earth. And the dragon, so we're talking about Satan here, stood before the woman who, remember, she was ready to give birth to devour her child. My Bible has that in capitalized C for this reason. In verse five, she bore a male child who was to rule all nations. Who was to rule all nations? With a rod of iron. That is a quote out of Psalm, the second chapter, which is a messianic chapter to tell us that the dragon was there to destroy Jesus when he was born on this earth. And yet he didn't succeed because the end of verse five says, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. There's a lot of ground that's covered in those verses. But, but what's on the surface? What's on the surface is you see Herod, the king, when Jesus was born, in his jealousy and wanting to protect his power, he feared of the great power that this king that he heard about being born might have. And so he decided, I want to kill all of the baby boys and I'm going to get rid of this Jesus. Well, he fell for Satan's temptation and he was responsible for his actions. I'm not excusing that, but you see what the underlying theme is. You see, he fell prey to Satan's temptation because Satan had a war going on against Jesus and Satan was setting out to destroy Jesus and he was going to be the one and using Herod, if you will, as his tool. I'm going to make sure that Jesus is destroyed when he is born. Like we studied this morning, if he doesn't live to become an adult, he can't be that lamb of God that dies and takes away our sins. I'm going to win this war. I'm going to destroy Jesus at his birth. But then we read that he didn't do that because he ascends up into heaven and he sits on the throne. That's Acts 1. That's the ascension. 
In other words, he skipped right over Jesus and his ministry. And, and here he even skips over his death and burial and resurrection. But yet, even in his death, Satan probably, we would assume, was most active because Satan would have wanted to hold Jesus in the grave. And you remember a part of Peter's sermon in Acts, the second chapter was, death could not hold him when he spoke about Jesus' resurrection. And so again, Satan lost. And so now Jesus is resurrected and then Jesus ascends into heaven. He can't keep Jesus off of the throne. Well, but he wanted to think that he could. So that takes us to the second battle. If you will, go to the seventh verse. Satan is not giving up. In the seventh verse, a war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. But they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. What does a battle look like between angels? I don't know. I don't even know how to imagine it. I know that one angel in Kings was able to go out and destroy 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. That's a lot of power. So if you have a host of angels with that much power fighting a host of angels with that much power, what does that war look like? What does it sound like? What are the weapons? How do they move about? I don't know. I just know that when Jesus ascended upon the throne, the revelator tells us that he went back into heaven and wanted to take Jesus off of the throne. But he could not prevail and he was cast out. In verse 9, so the great dragon was cast out. And who is that dragon? He's the serpent of old. He's the one in that went in the garden with Eve and Adam. And he's called the devil. And that name, devil, means slander, one that is always speaking evil of. And Satan, that name has to do with a slander, but also points towards deception, which is the rest of this description, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, and I want you to pause, and you know, we, we were... In, in one sense, in one angle, if you will, we've been studied this morning as we study about the Lord's Supper. But I just want to ask you in your life and when you take the Lord's Supper and day to day, when's the last time that you've just praised God for salvation? You see, when we forget that there's a war going on, what's the big deal about being saved if you don't even know there's a war going on? If you live each day without the understanding or yet on the other hand, if you realize every day that there's a war going on, how, how different is your appreciation of salvation? Notice the praise that comes out in verse 10 because then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down. The accuser that would speak evil of us. Now we know that, that Satan has no problem lying. He, he loves to lie, apparently. But let's face it, if he wants to accuse us, he doesn't even really have to lie, does he? Can you imagine how there's been times that he stood and talked to God about Eve? She's spineless. It was so easy to deceive her. You're going to stand up for her, God? Or Noah? <laughs> so you're impressed they built a boat. Do you remember they was drunken and lying naked in embarrassment shortly after that? Oh, so you think David was a great king. Do I need to remind you of his adultery and of his murderous acts? 
Oh, Peter, so great of a natural leader. God, do I need to remind you that he wouldn't even say that he knew your son? He denied him three times. Or what about if we just put my name and a blank and your name and a blank? And what would the accuser say about you? He doesn't even have to lie, does he? It looks pretty grim. It looks pretty bad. But now what about if the accuser and those sins that we've committed could both be cast away? And what if our sins could be removed from us? And what if the accuser, because our sins are removed from us, does not have a word to say against us that God will listen to? That would be overcoming. And so the very next verse, he says, and it takes us back in remembrance to this morning study, and they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to death. Who overcame? It's the very same way that we overcome today. It's only by the blood of the lamb. The lamb's blood was slain for us and we can accept that gift. And when we do that, we accept also his word and it becomes our testimony. And the word testimony there is the idea of we will speak it and the root of the word testimony is the very same word of martyr. In other words, it's the idea that I will speak the word of Jesus no matter what the cost. And in the time that Revelation was written, there were a lot of people that had and were going to give up their life. When a sword was thrust toward them, all they had to do was deny Jesus, deny the faith. I'm not a Christian anymore. I deny that. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I deny that. Okay, you can live. But notice here what they did. They would stand and let the Lord's word be their testimony and they did not love their own life unto death. Now, if that wording there throws you off, it's this simple what he's saying. He's saying that they loved the lamb and his word and the ability to stand up for the lamb. Remember Ephesians 6, where you're going to take your stand and above all withstand. And, and so he say, what, who are the ones that overcome? We're overcome by the blood of the lamb. His word becomes our testimony and we love the lamb and his word more than we love our very own life. And that's who overcomes. You say, well, Satan surely is going to give up now. He tried to destroy Jesus as a baby. It didn't work. He went into heaven, and tried to destroy him and it didn't work. And people were overcoming. But Satan doesn't give up that easily, does he? When we read the next, in verse 13, we see that he continued. Now, when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. And so now we got to figure out who this male child is because with the first two attempts being foiled, now he is focusing on this woman. Let's come back in a minute and talk about who this woman is. Let's go on and see another attempt. And there's a fourth group that he attacked in verse 17. And the dragon was enraged with the woman and he went to make war 
there's a war going on, you know. He went to make war with the rest of her offspring. Now, who would be the other offspring of this woman? Well, here, it's gonna be people who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. It's the same group up in verse 11. And it's the same group that any of us here Hopefully all of us here are a part of that group. And if not, we're going to sing an invitation song in a few minutes and we would invite you to become a part of this group to make your stand on the side of the Lord who is victorious. So there's attack. There's a war going on. Who's Satan going to attack? He says, I'm going to attack all the other offspring of this woman. That's you and I. That's real. That's still happening. There's a war going on. Satan is still attacking the followers of Jesus Christ, those who have overcome through the Lamb. But still we haven't figured out, or we haven't defined yet in this lesson, who is the woman? We know that she gave birth to Jesus, and we know that she gave birth to all the offspring who are followers of the commandments of God. Some have said, well, it's Mary. Well, Mary did give birth to Jesus, that's correct, but Mary did not give birth to the followers of, of Christ. So it can't be Mary. Some have said maybe it's the Jews, the Jewish lineage. Jesus, in a sense, was born from the Jewish lineage, but yet in Christianity, we're not born from the Jewish lineage. What if the woman is God's eternal plan to redeem mankind? It was God's eternal plan that gave birth to Jesus coming and living on this earth and dying so that we could be saved. And any of us here that are saved tonight were saved because of God's eternal plan. Now, if you want to see how this fits together, now let's go back to Ephesians, except this time let's go to the first chapter. And let me tell you what we'll try to do. We're going to develop... Uh, not heavily, just scan over one chapter, I mean, one uh, uh, paragraph in the first chapter, and then I'm just going to talk about a few things out of the rest of this book, and then the lesson is yours. Go with me, if you will, to Ephesians 1 and verse 3, and there are many things taught in these verses. But what I want you to notice as we read through this paragraph, beginning at 1 and 3, is I want you to notice how God's eternal plan is a major theme in this paragraph. He's gonna show how God the Father was involved in this eternal plan. He's gonna talk about how Christ was involved in this eternal plan. He's even gonna talk about how the Holy Spirit was involved in this eternal plan. And he's talking about how you and I, our lives can be beautifully affected by this eternal plan. But God's eternal plan will never be forced down someone's throat or into their life. We choose whether or not we wanna be a part, if we wanna be an offspring of the woman, so to speak, if we want to be an offspring of this eternal plan. So let's read in verse three. I'm in Ephesians one. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Just as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. That's when this eternal plan, it existed before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Pause there for a moment. How can we be holy and without blame for the Lord? We're sinners. How can we be holy? Well, this plan was made before the foundations of the world. And it was the eternal plan that said, I'm going to make a way to redeem mankind in spite of their imperfections, in spite of their sin. I'm going to make, make a way that they can be redeemed. And like in this verse in four, he says, they can be chosen. 
We can become a part of the chosen. In other words, that, that eternal plan offers the way and we have to decide if we want to be a part of it. That same kind of language as we go into five. Having predestined us to adoption as sons, how did it come about? By Jesus Christ to whom himself, now notice this next phrase, this is all about the eternal plan. It's describing, the, it's calling it, it's naming the eternal plan. According to the good pleasure of his will. Christ coming and dying for us was according to the eternal plan. According to God's good pleasure. It is what God wanted to do to have fellowship with us as we talked about this morning. Continue reading verse 6. This causes us to praise him when we understand it. To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. The only way we can be accepted is that the beloved, in other words, Jesus Christ came and that's a part of the eternal plan. Let's continue in seven and see about Jesus here. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. And part of the eternal plan is, is, is that wisdom and that prudence. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. And remember, as you go deeper into the second chapter and third chapter, it, it develops the fact that the mystery that he's speaking of here is that Jews and Gentiles, all nations are going to be brought into the one body of the church, which is an amazing study. We did that a, a few months ago. It's a beautiful, amazing study. That's a part of the eternal plan. According to his good pleasure, that's referring to the eternal plan, which he purposed. That's the eternal plan. God's purpose is to redeem us in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which on earth in him and him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him that's the eternal plan who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ do you trust Christ do you trust that eternal plan should be to the praise of his glory in him you also trusted do you trust the eternal plan do you trust Christ after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation whom also having believed you were sealed you say that's just so hard to believe it sounds too good to be true well the Holy Spirit's been given to us as a seal a promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. That whole chapter is all about God saying, let me tell you about my good pleasure. Let me tell you about the will of my good pleasure to redeem you. Let me tell you how Christ is a part of that. Let me tell you how the Holy Spirit is a promise of that. Do you want to be a part of that? Ephesians, especially the first half of the book, is theology. It's a study of God. What do you believe that God has done for you? What do you believe God is doing? And then you go over to chapter four, five, and six, and you see a lot of the application that if this is what you believe about God, this is what that life looks like lived out. And so when we get to the fourth chapter, the first 16 verses is, is a lot about the church. It's beautiful verses talking about what would cause the church to grow. The last half of verse four, the middle towards the end is, is dealing with, we can't live like heathens anymore. And then eventually we get to the fifth chapter and he teaches in the fifth chapter that we need to be imitators of God. Let that sink in, imitators of God. And we do it by the way that we love. We love like God loved and like Christ loved, sacrificial love. And we do it with enlightenment. We don't live in darkness. We allow God to enlighten us. 
and we do it in wisdom. We don't walk in foolishness, but we walk in wisdom. Now, all of that has led up to then as husbands and wives, we reflect Christ in the church. The sixth chapter, children, you'd obey your parents and Lord because it's right. Sixth chapter and verse four, fathers, you would provide spiritual nurturing and training for your children. Verse five and six and following, those of us that are employees, we would work for our employers, but instead we do it as if we're working for the Lord. And masters would have the same application in the way they would lead their people. Now, if it stopped right there, and that's kind of all you knew, we might say, that's beautiful. That's pretty easy. Look at God's eternal plan. He's offered it to us. And we just imitate God. And we just go to our homes. And we go to our workplaces. And we just imitate God. And then you get to the sixth chapter in verse 10. And he says, oh, oh, but... I need to remind you of why it's so hard. There's a war going on. It's Satan that wants you to adopt God's eternal plan. It's Satan that doesn't want us as a church family, the fourth chapter, to be healthy and growing. It's Satan that wants to convince you and I that either we can't or we're too distracted to be imitators of God and to love like God and to be enlightened with the wisdom of God and to be wise. And let's face it, we go to the fifth chapter and we start looking at relationships and there are many challenges in relationships. Why is it so hard to go home and be the husband and wife God calls us to be? Why is it so hard to be the obedient child God calls me, to be the father that God calls me, to be the employee or the employer that God calls us to be? And then we get to the sixth chapter and verse 10, and there's that aha moment. It makes sense. There's an enemy, and Satan wants to destroy our influence. Satan wants to destroy the goodness in this congregation. Let that sink in. It's not just a given that we would always be a congregation of unity. It's not just a given that we would always be a faithful congregation. It's not just a given that we would always love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we would love each other as ourselves. Satan would love to destroy that. There's a war going on. Satan would love to destroy our homes. He would love to destroy our marriages. He would love to destroy our, our children being obedient or our parenting being godly. He would love for us to go to work or to school tomorrow and just not live for him. And so the sixth chapter, beginning at verse 10, is kind of the close of Ephesians to say, all those things would probably be pretty easy if there wasn't an enemy. But there is an enemy. And so decide which side you're going to stand on. Take on the armor and withstand the enemy and have your power and your strength coming from the Lord.
the one within us is greater than the one who is in the world. We've got to believe that and we must rely upon him, not ourselves, but upon him. Tonight as you battle, I just want to urge you to not give up. Satan would love to convince you that you can't do it, that you're an isolated case and, and, and nobody else is going through what you're going through. And I just want to remind you tonight that the reason Paul put Ephesians, the sixth chapter and verse 10 in that is because that's where every one of us live. Every one of us live with an enemy. But praise God, we can live as those who overcome we can be redeemed and we can walk in strength. And so as strange as this may be, I, I was hoping tonight's lesson would be an encouragement to have our eyes open. There is an enemy. There is a war. But when we stand on the side of God, we can overcome. If there's anything we can do to help you tonight, we would love